Well, I want to welcome you this morning, and I want to begin on this Christ the King Sunday just imagining for a second. Imagine that you had free access to all of the crown jewels of England, and you could go into that room by yourself and touch them and explore them. What would you do with the crown? What would you do with the crown if you had access? I would put it on my head. I would pick that crown up and I would put it on my head and think, wow, this is what it feels like to be the king of England or the queen of England. This is amazing. Uh, that's from the Sherlock series. I know many of you have seen it. That's Moriarty who's broken in and stolen the crown jewels and he's put the crown on his head. Now imagine, you can take that picture away. Now imagine um, the same scenario, but instead the crown of our king is in the same room and you went in there you would be reticent to pick up his crown and to put it on your head. I have a ring on my finger that Heather gave me about 10 years ago as a birthday present, and it's just a simple little crown of thorns, and it reminds me of the difference of our king from all other kings, that we have the kind of king who would be willing to sacrifice like that out of love for us, and he stayed on that cross even though he was being mocked because by not saving himself, he was able to save us. Listen to this quote from the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon. He said, Jesus Christ looked down and he saw the people he was dying for, some cringing, some snarling, all of them clueless. And in the greatest act of strength and love in the history of the world, he stayed. Jesus stayed so that we could be saved. But saved from what? And saved to what? I cringe a little bit because I think of Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I know in the immediate context, he was speaking of those who were crucifying him, but I think even of myself, that prayer seems to apply too often. Father, forgive Mike, for he knows not what he does. As the world and its hooks get into me and into each one of us and pull us out of the center, pulls Christ out of the center and puts something else on the throne of our hearts that is constantly happening in this life. The definition that I've come across in the last couple of years of what a disciple is, someone who is a student of Jesus, is very simple. It's taken from Jesus' initial call to the disciples. He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And someone who is a disciple has heard the call of Jesus and responded and said, I will follow you. And then, he's, and then Jesus says, and I will make you then the process of Christ making us into his image starts. And that's a lifelong thing. So a disciple has intentionally responded to the call, is agreeing with the work of God in, in his or her life to make that person more and more like Christ. And then finally, fishers of men, a disciple takes the mission of Jesus on as your own mission. I'm going to share the good news to the world that people will come to Christ and also be disciples. The crown of thorns is a reminder of the call to discipleship that he has a cross and he gives us a cross, that he has a crown and he invites us to wear that crown as well, but it's a different kind of crown. I think of the Apostle Paul, how he said in Philippians, something that is so staggering because he's in prison, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the Apostle Paul knew what it was like to be rich. He knew what it was like to be poor. He knew what it was like to be free and also to be in prison. And he'd come to the place where because Christ was all that mattered to him, he was able to handle any circumstance that would come his way. 
any circumstance that would come his way, all the way even to death. Now today I want to explore this passage from Luke under kind of three headings. The two criminals, the two words of Jesus, and then two application points. So if you'll turn with me, we'll go to Luke 23, and we'll start by uh, looking at verse 38. In this passage, it says, there was also an inscription over Jesus that said, this is the king of the Jews. Now, the Jews took offense to this. The the, The rulers went to Pilate and said, not king of the Jews, but rather it should read, this man said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what is written is written. What I've written, I've written. And he was mad. He was irritated with the Jews for putting him in this difficult spot. And so as a sort of passive-aggressive thing he did, he put that over Jesus in three languages. It was in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So everyone passing by would see this, this figure on the cross, this man dying in, in nakedness and shame and pain. And then it says the king of the Jews on top of him. Immediately it would incite sarcasm in almost everyone. And then people heard one another doing it. It says that the people stood off at a distance, or the people stood and watched, but the rulers began to mock him and give insults. And the soldiers picked up on it as well. And then even the two other criminals that were crucified with him started to mock him too. We we know this because in Matthew's gospel, you have to kind of piece this scenario together from all four of the writers to get a fuller picture of what happened. But in Matthew's gospel, it says, the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. In other words, in plural, both of them were doing it. So the one keeps doing it and the other changes. Something happens to him. But look at verse 39. Here's what the first criminal says. By the way, in Matthew, he calls them robbers. I'm sure they were robbers, but you don't typically get crucified for, for uh, stealing. They were murderers as well. So they had done violent crime and were on the cross for that. So in here, they're called criminals in Luke. In verse 39 of Luke's gospel, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Are you not the Christ? Kind of, you could read it as, okay, if you're the Christ, save yourself, oh, and save us as well, right? That prayer is not all that different from a similar prayer many of us may pray from time to time or may have prayed. The prayer that kind of goes like this, God, if there is a God, fix my problem and then I'll believe in you, right? We've, I mean, if you're honest, at some point in your life, you've probably prayed something like that. And and here's a painful reality. If you're in here and you are not sure that you can trust Christ, and maybe you're stuck in a skeptical place, it might be because you prayed that prayer. You prayed that prayer, God, here's my agenda. Fix it for me if you're real, and then I'll worship you. And he doesn't answer that prayer. He doesn't hear, and he typically doesn't answer that prayer for two main reasons. One, it won't ultimately save you. If he merely fixes your problem, how long will it be until you have another problem? See, we need to be like Paul who says, I've learned how to abound or to be brought low. I can do all things through Christ. So he doesn't answer the prayer because it's not really what you need. It might be what you want in the moment, but it's not what you need. And it puts a condition on him. You know, are you really real? Prove it. We're putting God to the test if we pray like the first criminal. If you're real, fix my problem and then I'll serve you. Then I'll believe. The other reason is it makes you the Lord And it makes him your servant. And while we do have a king who is a suffering servant, but he is still the Lord and he is the king. And we are called to come and serve him. 
He serves us first and invites us then to serve him. And if we pray a prayer like that, we're saying, serve my need, and then I'll believe in you. It makes us the Lord. Now let's look at the second criminal. In verse 40, it says, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. We're getting justice. Don't you recognize this? That God's justice through the Roman government has come down to us. We have stolen and killed, and this is what we deserve. We're guilty, right? I remember that movie, The Shawshank Redemption, and how there's a scene right in the beginning of it where everybody that comes in, there's, he, uh, Red, the character who's Red, Morgan Freeman says, nobody in Shawshank is guilty. And they all talk about how their lawyer failed them or it, they were set up or no, there's no guilty person in there. And, and it's, it's so true, right? I mean, even people in this situation don't want to say, I'm guilty, I deserve this. But when the Holy Spirit convicts, that's what we say, because it's true. And this second criminal comes to that conclusion. I deserve this. And he says to his, his, the other criminal, don't you fear God? How can you continue to mock? Don't you see what has happened? We, are, we have failed and we are being judged for that. We deserve this, but that man doesn't deserve it. How did he know that? Well, the first word of Jesus in this section, we, I backed up a little, I'm backing up a little bit to verse 32. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the prayer that he prays. In Luke's gospel, there's only three words of Jesus recorded on, on the cross. The first one is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How does this man know? He heard the first word of Jesus. He also heard Jesus speaking to the women of Jerusalem who were weeping for him. And he said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. They didn't understand. They didn't know what this crucifixion meant. And he was serving them by correcting that. And not just that, but his, in, in John's gospel, it tells us that his mom was there. How hard must have that, that have been for him? He looks down from the cross and says to the apostle John, woman, this is your son, and John, this is your mother now. He was even on the cross caring for provision for his mom. So the way that Jesus is a king is a king who is concerned not for his own welfare, but for those he's serving. That's who our king is. And this criminal, this second criminal, with the presence of the Holy Spirit working on him, recognized that he was also in the presence of a king. Just because a man sits on a throne doesn't make him a king. And just because a king is not on a throne doesn't make him not a king. Jesus might have been naked and in shame hanging on that cross, but this criminal recognized that he was in the presence of royalty. He had a crown on still, a crown of thorns, but he was a king. And the result was a change in his heart. And so his request is sort of surprising to us. You know, you'd think most people would say, you know, I don't deserve it. I don't even deserve to come to him. I'm bad. I'm getting what I deserve. I'm bad. I get bad things. Or I've been basically good. Therefore, I deserve to be in your kingdom. And many, many of us know that prayer as well. And I, I would guess if you surveyed all of our country, a majority of the people would take that view. I'm a basically good person. Therefore, I will go to heaven. I mean, I think they actually have surveyed a pretty significant portion of our country, and that was the result. I'm basically good, therefore I deserve heaven. And his request is sort of weird. I know I'm not good. I'm on this cross because I am a criminal. I'm convicted, and this is what I deserved. And then he has the boldness to say, but will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? 
You see, he's not asking a prayer, save my skin, get me down off this cross, save yourself and save us as well. He's given up that fight. He's now concerned for his soul. He recognizes there's a bigger thing happening here. And he recognizes that Jesus is a king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He learned this just on the cross. And Jesus' response is so full of grace. Today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say two years from now, once you've paid off some of this sin, and a man hanging on a cross can't do any works. He, it's, it's not like he can repent and, and then le- clean up his act, so to speak. Clean living. He, he can't do that. He's, he is dead. Basically. He'll be dead before the sun goes down in actuality. And so Jesus just graciously answers the prayer. And the prayer is basically saying, will you remember me? I love you. Will you accept me? I want you. Not, will you fix my problem? He's putting Christ at the center. And then he gets that amazingly gracious answer, today you will be with me in paradise. Now listen to something that is sort of mind-blowing. This is the Apostle Paul again. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. There he is taking ownership for that. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, just like that criminal on the cross, made us alive together with Christ. It's past tense. Notice these verbs. Made us alive together with Christ. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That criminal in that very moment was saved, raised up, and given a seat in the heavenlies with Christ. Today you'll be with me in paradise, he is told. Now it blows our minds that we have a throne with Christ in his throne room, that we are seated with him in the heavenlies already for those of us who are in Christ even though chronologically things seem weird to us. It's very mystical to think about that. But that criminal there, because of that word of grace from Jesus, had the longest and hardest day of his life suddenly become the best day of his life. Now that was a long, I don't know, probably six more hours for him. That happened before noon when the sky grew dark. I I think that happened earlier. So somewhere between five and six hours, that man hung on that cross, slowly in pain, but inwardly rejoicing. Because of the word of assurance that came, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus gives him that great news. So there's two criminals. There's two words. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And today you'll be with me in paradise. And now two applications. The first, make Jesus the center of your life. Anything less than that will come up short. If we pray the prayer, God, help my problem We are bringing our agenda to him and asking him to fix something that will then break again. If we say, come and remember me, know me, be the center of my life, then we can handle anything, whatever might come our way. We can handle it because he is what matters. He's the Lord of the universe, as Dan reminded us at the beginning of the service. If he's the center, I ask you, what is the center of your life? Is it Christ? If it's anything less than Christ, you will be set up for failure. You will not be satisfied in that. There can be other things in your life as long as Christ is the the cornerstone of your life. If he's the very center, that's enough. He invites us to put on his crown and to put to death whatever is of the old sinful ways in our body and our mind. He invites us to join with him in that process of sanctification, becoming like him. 
And then here's a, here's a hard thing from this passage. Because he forgave us, not only do we need to make him the center of our lives, but then we need to extend forgiveness to others. And right now, I know there are some of you who are really struggling with that. Someone has hurt you in some way, and you know you need to forgive them, and you just can't. That idea of forgive and forget doesn't actually work, because you can't forget. You can't. The difference, though, is learning what to do with the memory. So yeah, you don't try to get revenge, because you know that's wrong, but in your heart, you're wishing ill. You're wishing someone else would get revenge for you, right? That's the temptation. But what we have to do is take even that thought, and we have to turn our attention to the cross. We have to look and go, when Jesus hung on that cross, he was doing it for me. And he's saying, Father, forgive Mike, for he knows not what he does. And I have sinned against Christ in so much worse of a way than anything anyone could do to me that when I recognize that, I'm able to extend forgiveness for even the worst sin because of what Christ has done for me. If Christ is a center and my eyes are on the cross, then other things begin to be manageable, even forgiving someone. To the extent that we understand the significance of the cross, we will become like Christ. And to the extent that we are not yet like Christ, we don't understand the cross. When we understand what he has done for us, then we become like him. Then we start to take on his character traits. Then we're able to forgive. Then we're able to be satisfied whether things are going well or not. We are set up then for a life that does have difficulty because he is all that matters. Because he stayed on that cross and did not do what they were mocking him to do, he was able to save us. If he had saved himself, he wasn't able to save us. But because he didn't save himself, we then have been saved and invited into the heavenlies with him. And let me close where I began with this quote again. Jesus Christ looked down and he saw the people he was dying for, some cringing, some snarling, all of them clueless. And in the greatest act of strength and love in the history of the world, he stayed. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the incredible grace that you have shown us. I thank you for not saving your own skin so that we could be saved. I thank you for the call to discipleship. Lord, I present to you anything that might be in the center of my heart other than you. And I pray that on behalf of all of us, that you'd give us the grace, Lord, to make Christ first. And I thank you in advance for the joy that comes from that. I pray this in the name of Jesus.